Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squeeze Show podcast. All the best bits from my weekly radio show on SW20 Radio every Tuesday, 6pm. You can find it on sw20radio.co.uk or on the app. But for now, here's the podcast version. For rights reasons, all the musical selections are shorter and if they are played in full, it's with the express permission of the artist. Please enjoy this week's show. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, but we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Hey folks, this is Leezy from Matt in the Morning and the 505 Drive. The doctor is in. You're listening to the Dr. Squeeze Show on SW20 Radio, the new sound of South Wales. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squeeze Show, back for 2022, baby! And apparently now I'm saying baby, which we will now drop. It's not good. It doesn't work for me. But guys, look, uh, thank you very much. We had a bit of a rocky start to 2022 here in the Dr. Squee household. Unfortunately, uh, after the first week we were due back, which would have been two weeks ago, we had the power go out to the bottom half of our house. And given that we work from home, I had to be very careful about not overtaxing the other half. For some reason, fuse went, it wouldn't switch back on. And then just as quickly, a few days later, it did come back on. And then the week later, I was bitten by the vid. I finally uh, succumbed to COVID after three vaccines, three shots, and still I managed to get COVID. But guys, I am better now. I want to thank each and every one of you for your kind wishes, uh, for your messages of support while I wasn't feeling very well. So me and Nicola were both down with the vid and um, I, I can only say it was not fun. I would not recommend it. If you're thinking about getting it for a laugh, don't do it. But guys, look, it, it appears as if now with this latest wave of COVID, we're all likely to get it at one time or another. So please, if you do, just look after yourselves. Take the time you need to get better. It's really important. I end up having to take a week off. Um, I didn't love that, but it, it's it's what you've got to do to let your body recover. So I hope you're all well and uh, safe out there. I want to open the show as well by wishing a very happy birthday to our very own Amy C., uh, from the request show and Sundays with Aim Claire. Um, so I hope she's having an absolutely wonderful day and uh, I believe she's listening right now. So happy birthday, Amy. Uh, lots of love out there. Tonight, we've got an amazing show for you. We've got the one and only Todd Tucker on the show. Now, you may not recognise the name, but you will recognise the shows he has worked on. He's worked on Friends. He's worked on Mrs. Doubtfire, on Hook, on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, on Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. He's worked on so many things. I can't even remember all the many various credits, but we talked about as many of them as we could. He's also here to talk about the new... Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie which is coming to Netflix in February and uh, he designed the costume and the look of the new Leatherface so uh, what an amazing time we had talking to him he has just got stories and projects he's worked on to spare every time he talks one anecdote he brings another project because just he's worked on so many things. Um, it was a wonderful time talking to him. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So in tribute to him, because he has worked, uh, as especially most recently, in horror, and uh, he's done lots of work in the horror genre, 
we've turned the theme for this week over to horror. So it's all things horror. If you've got a request you want played, uh, which we've already got so many uh, wonderful tracks selected, please uh, write to dogsquee at gmail.com on uh, Twitter and Instagram. It's at dogdesquee. You can go to the uh, either the interactions page for SW20 Radio or the Dogdesquee Show on uh, Facebook and put in your requests. Look, uh, it was a wonderful time. You're going to love uh, the interview. You're going to love the tracks we've got coming up. But I thought, because it's a new year, before we get into our theme of the week, I'd play a couple of brand new tracks for 2022. So first one you might not be so surprised about because, you know, it's kind of in my uh, wheelhouse. It's uh, Land on My Head, the new track by the Bare Naked Ladies. And then we're going to be enjoying Essence featuring Thames uh, by Wizkid, uh, which is slightly less in my usual oeuvre, if you will. And I'm going to use the word oeuvre just to, to sound a bit posh and poncy there. But um, it was one which was recommended by uh, one of my teammates at work, and, and I kind of dug it. It's something a bit different for me. hope you enjoy it as much as I do. But let's kick things off. First track of 2022. This is Bare Naked Ladies Landed on My Head. You're listening to SW20 Radio, the new sound of South Wales. <laughs> You know my face, not my name. Funny all the same. They won't know what hit these fools. That was Essence by Wizkid featuring Thames. Now, don't say I'm not down with the kids, guys. And... I, I mainly say down with the kids just to annoy my own, but that's not the point. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed that. I think that's a nice chill tune uh, for today. Guys, look, uh, we've got an amazing show uh, coming up. As I said, we are going to be joined in just a minute by the wonderful Todd Tucker in a pre-recorded interview. Uh, as I say, I've been down with the COVID, though, and uh, as such, I've been catching up on a bit of TV. It's been a great time. We watched a bit of uh, Cobra Kai, which is amazing, this series. If you're a fan of Karate Kid and you haven't watched it, what are you doing, guys? They brought back all the classic uh, characters. You've got Daniel Sun. You've got uh, his arch nemesis, uh, played by William Zapka, uh, Johnny Lawrence. And uh, they've just brought in, in this series, the baddie from the third film. They've gone that deep into Karate Kid. Now, now, now bring back the character of Terry Silver. And man, if you've ever watched the third Karate Kid movie, that guy plays at large. He does. He swings for the fences. He is on a Nicolas Cage level of large performance. And to begin with, when they bring him back, he's he's playing, you know, a little bit more straight-laced. Oh man, though, does he bring it when he goes? Uh, you, you just got to check it out. We also caught up uh, watching back all the um, Karate Kid, I almost said, all the Spider-Man films uh, where No Way Home's uh, just been in the cinemas. And man, again... Very satisfying watch going all all through the Spider-Man. Anyway, look, I digress, guys. We've got uh, our guest tonight coming up in just a moment. But before that, we're going to play the first of our horror tunes. Uh, And I do actually have to give a shout out to everyone who has requested a tune so far. So uh, let's go through all the tracks which you have requested, which will be played throughout the interview. So we've got... Uh, Rosemary Fish has requested I Put a Spell on You. We've got Ian McDonald with uh, Lost Boys uh, soundtrack with People Are Strange. Time Walk from the Rocky Horror Picture Show from a birthday girl, Amy Livington. Chris Jones, our beloved station manager, 
uh, or at least one of them, has requested... Uh, she's, he's also put um, Nina Simone's version, he's asked for, of I Put a Spell on You, so that's one I have included. Uh, ACDC, Highway to Hell, Biffy Cairo, Many of Horrors, and then our very own Carl Greenhalf, who helps uh, with our social media here on SW20 Radio, has requested Someone's Watching Me by Rockwell. So we're going to hear all those tracks throughout this interview, but we're going to kick it off uh, with one of our own. Uh, this is from the Matt Lee's band uh, featuring, surprise, surprise, Matt Lee's. And this is Ghost in You. Uh, you're listening to SW20 Radio. And here is over to Matt Lee's now. Come a little closer I swear there is nothing wrong with me I'm just a little homesick A man who is missing his family So may I introduce you I'm a jump-started, broken-hearted storyteller I have nothing for you I'm a handwritten in a digital age You don't have to say it's beautiful Or say anything at all You don't have to say it's beautiful Just leave it to the melody But the ghost in you Haunts me when I'm sleeping late at night The ghost in you So can I come a little closer See I'm almost sure There's not much wrong with me I'm just a little crazy A man who is missing his fantasy I'm screaming and I'm screaming I try and I try but I can't make a sound Hold a little tighter Cause this could be the moment it all breaks down again You don't have to say it's beautiful Or say anything at all They're beautiful 
the melody Now, if I say the name of my guest tonight, Todd Tucker, spoiler alert, uh, you may not know the name, but you will certainly know the work. He's a makeup artist who's also worked as a director and an actor, a writer. He's done pretty much everything. Uh, when I mentioned the projects he's been in, uh, the original Flash TV show, The Pit and the Pendulum, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Hook, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Jim Carrey's The Mask, uh, Mighty Morphin, Morphin Power Rangers. There is literally too much to go through here, but we're going to do our best for the next hour. Uh, and he's here, of course, to also talk about his work on the new Netflix uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where he worked on the look of the new Leatherface. Please welcome to the Dr. Squee Show, Todd Tucker. How are you doing, Todd? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, I'm glad to hear you're feeling better. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, what I've said is like it was, a, I think, a milder case of COVID, but it will suffice. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, apparently uh, it's not fun no matter how you get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend it, basically, but no. it sounds like we're all going to get it in this way, this next wave. Right. Yeah. But anyway, sir, look, I digress. Uh, we've got so much to get through. Uh, you, you've had a busy old career right there, I, I can see. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. I um, I started back right around the early 90s and uh, got in with a really good group of people and, and got to work on some major, major films right out of the bat or right out of the gate and, and, uh, and got a lot of high-end experience very quickly. But it was I was very lucky. I got to work with great artists and great actors and directors. And and I knew that eventually I wanted to direct and, and produce my own films also. So I got to really study uh, on set in person some of my favorite directors like Spielberg and Coppola and and Cameron and all these amazing, amazing, you know, directors. So I've been very fortunate. And for you, where does the interest begin in uh, makeup effects? Um, well, I was an only child with a lot of time on my hands and I was, uh, uh, very artistic, uh, maybe a little autistic. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> I started doing this when I was younger. I started making stuff in my garage and putting on plays and, you know, all, all theatrical stuff. I was obsessed with movies. Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet, uh, these two guys just as I was about to graduate high school, uh, these two guys named Matt Rose and Steve Wang. And they became my mentors and taught me how to do special effects and how to sculpt and paint and create creatures and design and do all that. And then um, I went off and, and was a, uh, a studio musician and was touring with a band for a few years while I was practicing my, my effects at the same time. And uh, while M Matt and Steve went down to Los Angeles and started working uh, on Aliens, that was their first big movie. And uh, they got really uh, ingrained in the in the industry and got a name for themselves. And then a few years later, I decided that I wanted to start doing effects. I put make, uh, music aside. I moved down to Los Angeles and uh, was fortunate enough to start working right away on some pretty major films. And um, it, was a, it was a whole goal that I had uh, to eventually get into writing and directing and acting and just kind of do all the different things that I wanted to do. And I've been very fortunate enough to be able to do that. So... Uh, I, I will say to anyone out there, if you have something in life that you want to do, don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Just go do it. <laughs> Fantastic advice. And, you know, we mentioned one of your, like, your first credit on IMDb is The Pit and the Pendulum. Straight out of the gate, you're sucking into the mind of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> you, what kind of things did you end up working in on that? And how did it feel to work on such a big production so early on? 
Well, believe it or not, it, it was already uh, a good portion of the movie had already been shot and they needed to add all these effect shots into it. So, um, and I had literally just started working at the company that we were doing this for like a week before. So, uh, they needed to have a, uh, there's a part where a corpse rises from the ground and I volunteered right off the bat to uh, be the guy underneath the corpse to make it rise and puppeteer it because I, I was a huge Henson fan and a, a, I puppeteered a lot and wore creature suits enough. So I was like throwing myself in the mix every time I could. And um, it was kind of funny because we built this stage at our studio and we built this corpse puppet and I got underneath the stage and they brought the film crew there and we shot everything there as inserts. And uh, there was a guy there shooting smoke underneath the stage to make it look like smoke was coming up from from the body and he kept shooting this grease oil onto my arm and it kept burning my arm so you'll see the puppet kind of shaking as it's lifting and it's me getting scolded by oil <laughs> so i learned I'm, I'm right sure off it the very bat dramatic when it starts shaking fun, painful <laughs> Uh, we are going to sort of jump about a little bit. As I say, there's just such an embarrassment of riches you worked on. Uh, something which I found very interesting was you worked on the original Flash TV show with uh, John Wesley Shipp. And back then, it seems to me that uh, it seems to me now, if you worked on a DC show, you would have so many restrictions, so many kind of guidelines, which way you've got to put it. It feels like back then you maybe had a bit more creative freedom. Was that the case? Well, it's funny because that was actually the very first thing I ever worked on. The very first day I started at the company that I that I was with for many, many years, uh, we did the first Flash episode and we didn't build the suit. Uh, that was another company. We, we kind of came in and did all of the creatures of the week and the different villains and stuff. So, um, and that was before superhero movies were superhero movies. Uh, nothing really had been out at that point. That was a big, you know, blockbuster superhero movie. So, yeah, it was a lot less intense, I guess you would say, uh, a little bit more open creatively. Um, it was interesting because the very first, again, I kept throwing myself in the mix. There was a scene in this episode of The Flash where a bad guy turned himself into a werewolf and uh, there's a scene where he's morphing into the werewolf in a dumpster in downtown LA and we were asked to go down and do this and of course me like an idiot I'm like I'll do it I'll do it so they threw me in a dumpster downtown LA with this puppet and I realized while I was in the dumpster puppeteering the 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 werewolf that there were like rats in the dumpster with me <laughs> so so uh we shot that as quickly as we could so I could get the hell out of there and not get bit and get uh, weird rabies or something. But it was um, it was a lot of fun. The show was fun. And my all-time favorite monster is werewolf. So for me to work on a werewolf for the first thing out of the gate was really pretty cool for me personally. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Are you able to just turn your volume up just a little bit, your end? Turn it off or turn it what? Turn it up just a little bit. Your, your volume just a little bit um my volume believe it or not is all the way up no problem we'll, we'll yeah we'll go i can, I can no talk problem. a little closer if you need me to or a little louder not a problem at all uh and does that kind of like working on the flash and uh getting right in there with it uh, no one can can say when you're writing and directing that you haven't been there in the trenches yourself uh does it inform when you go on to do something later like the watchmen yeah watchmen was um awesome because well, because Zach basically told us to buy multiple copies of the book, uh, 
of the novel. And that was going to be our resource for the entire film. So anytime we had a question on that film, we went right to the novel and that was our answer. So he was so adamant about staying true to that novel that it kind of simplified things because we could get answers more quickly. Um, and it was just a huge movie to work on. We did a lot of the likeness makeups of the different presidents and the historical characters, along with the old age on the comedian character and, um, we had nothing to do with the blue character, but we did a lot of the, of the, um, the gore and all that stuff. And it shot up in Canada. We, we would go back and forth to Canada and, and, uh, the sets were huge. I mean, it was a pretty massive, really cool movie to work on. Yeah. And, um, being the artistic director on a comic book movie, what, what does that exactly entail? Cause I think sometimes some of the titles, uh, behind the jobs that you've done, I'm familiar, that familiar to, to a lot of us and, and exactly what that entails within that movie well for that movie um uh for the watchman basically i was one of the owners of the shop um at that time and um we had a team of probably 20 people i think creatively that we were jumping in and sculpting and painting and and then uh you know i so i i supervised everybody and dropped in there creatively a few times but it was a huge build and then i had to go on set and uh, do some of the makeups and just kind of oversee and make sure that everything went accordingly and that there were no creative issues and, and just make sure that the quality of everything was everything that we promised Zachy would have. And, um, and again, that was, a, that was a tough one too, because for us, um, we did a lot of the likeness makeups and, you know, they would send us photos of the people that they wanted us to create the makeups on. And some of them were so far from what the guy looked like that we weren't able to do it. We had to tell him we need a face structure that we can work with in order to create these makeups. So that was really tough getting some of the Canadian actors um, or LA actors to uh, have their face structure be close enough for us to be able to add the appliances on to really make them look like the uh, people that we were making. But um, we got close on a few of them and some of them I don't think we got close at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolutely spectacular film and the thing which i know which goes especially with someone like Zack snyder you you have so much which is kind of um prepped and planned in advance but i know also on these huge things there are also things which go wrong on the day was there anything which you had to kind of last minute uh do a workaround or something different with um you know there's i mean every movie every single time you go on set of a movie there's some challenge that you can't expect and you don't expect and you're not you can't really prepare for so i mean it was just kind of the normal stuff like just you know um i mean nothing really there was no tragedies or anything that really went wrong on that project just it was just hard that you know um trying to make these likeness makeups you know like this makeups um old age makeups are really hard uh but once you kind of figure them out um because i worked on benjamin buttons back in the day and and we by that time we'd done enough likeness makeup so we kind of had a rhythm to what it was are not like this old age makeups when we do likeness makeups it's really hard because i worked on um white chicks also and when we tried to do the tried to do the wayans brothers to look like the girls that they had hired to be the original girls that we were trying to match it's really hard and that really didn't work either to be honest with you the makeups were okay and the guys did a great job as those girls but the makeups didn't really look like the girls so that's always the hardest challenge I get is likeness makeups, unless it's just on stunt people. Cause we do a lot of stunt people likeness makeups, which they don't do as much now 
because they can do digital face replacement. But back in the day, we did a lot of likeness makeups, but it didn't matter. It was somebody swinging through a shot and it wasn't focused on. When it's a focused makeup and it's right there, you know, the biggest thing on the screen, those are really tough to do sometimes. And I think Watchmen, you know, had, had that was the biggest issue we had was making those likeness makeups work. I, I think you, you like, I mean, this may be is, is my age talking here. I feel like you're a real makeup person if you had to go through that kind of painstakingly creating stuff as opposed to doing it all digitally. That's a, a skill in itself, and I don't mean to take anything away from it, but there's something just so wonderful about the hands-on nature of the way it used to be made. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you what. Um, one, of my, one of my greatest experiences, I, I worked with Mel Gibson a lot. Uh, we did a lot of uh, old age movies with him. We did Forever Young and Man Without a Face, and I got to work hands-on with him. And then um, I was working with him on a film, and he was telling me that he was going to do this Jesus movie. And I was like, "Wow, well, please let us, you know, let us be involved." And in, and you know, um, and we talked him into letting us do all the digital, which we weren't a digital company; we we're a makeup company. So we opened up a digital company across the street and got to come up with a lot of inventive ways that hadn't been done before of combining digital effects and practical effects um, for the film. And we did over 148, I think it was 148 visual effects combinations. So, you know, really the sometimes the best way to get a finished character or a finished element is to combine digital and practical and start with as much practical as you can. Um, but it's really hard for the audience to tell that there are digital effects when you have a lot of practical elements mixed in. So uh, I got a really good education, which for me as a director was great because I could use that for all of the films that I direct and produce that knowledge of how to, you know, how to do that. But, um, you know, a lot of makeup people for a long time were like, Oh, we hate digital. We hate digital. But the reality is it's, it's very different. And now, um, a lot of people want to use practical makeups a lot more than than digital. So there is a good combination of, of makeup and practical. And you see a lot more practical makeups nowadays. Yeah, my understanding is that now, even in shots, which we would never imagine there's visual effects in, something's gone on in the background to make it look exactly how we see it on screen. Yeah, and, and you know, the thing is, is it's really what I learned... Um, as a filmmaker is, is if you can film a practical element and digitally put it into a shot, it's still a real element. It's not a digital element that has something about it that might just feel unnatural. It's real. So if you like, if you film fire against a green screen and then put that fire into a shot, it's still fire. So as long as you can clean it up and make it not have, you know, a, a look of two different elements, it looks completely believable. So you know, to be able to do that with characters. And, and there was a movie called Pan's Labyrinth that came out years ago, and they did a really nice combination of, of digital and, and practical characters. And I think that opened the door for a lot of filmmakers to want to combine that a lot more because you can really do a lot of great stuff and, and cheat the audience so they don't know how you did it. SW20. One which I have to ask you about, just because I'm a, a huge nerd of, of lots of stripes, but uh, certainly for Star Trek is, is a big one for me. Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, um, widely regarded as one of the, the best Star Trek movies. Please say you've got to work on some Klingons. 
I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I would love to tell you I did, but you know what? We only did one thing for that movie, but it was a really cool thing. Um, we made the Klingon dog. <laughs> the dog. The dog, yeah. We had a giant Malamute. I think it was a Malamute. Trained Malamute came in, and we did a head cast of the dog. I don't know how the hell we did that, but we we did a cast of his head, and we actually created a head that he could wear and we, the dog was okay with it. I mean, I, I was originally like, man, this is going to be, you know, torturous for the dog, but the dog actually enjoyed it. I don't know why. And we made that dog and it was, it was the weirdest thing in the world because, because it moved like an animal, but it was a giant monster. <laughs> you know, it was I, pretty I cool. I wish we'd done the Klingons. I'll I wish we'd done a lot more, but they had already done everything. And then I, I guess last minute they decided they need this dog. And, you know, they would have done it digitally if it had been that time, but it wasn't digital time yet. That hadn't shown up yet. So this was a little bit before digital. So they, they had to do it practically. Oh, and I, I'm glad the dog had a good time. That That's nice to hear as a, as a dog lover myself. He actually did. I swear to God, I, I was kind of surprised because I, I felt bad at first putting the dog in the suit, but the trainer was really good with the dog and, and the dog was really... Um, I don't know how to say it. I guess it was a real positive dog. It was a very happy dog. So it was it was a good experience. Uh, and I'm starting to run out of ways of saying uh, about how these wonderful worlds you got to uh, play in. But uh, Hook uh, with Robin Williams, uh, it seems like Robin Williams would be one of these people who would be very kind of uh, collaborative. Did, did he have a lot of, of saying, a lot of ideas towards the visual look of that film? So here was the thing about Hook. Um, and I was on hook within about a year, I think it was, maybe a year and a half of, of starting really in the industry. I grew up without a dad, and Robin Williams was my surrogate father, whether he knew it or not. I, I grew up wanting to be Robin Williams, and he was his his humor is really what got me through a lot of weird stuff as a kid. And my all-time favorite movies ever are Spielberg movies. So for me to be on the set of a movie with Robin Williams and Steven Spielberg right when I got to Hollywood was like th the greatest thing in the world. Robin came into our studio. We did a head cast of him. I was so in awe and so just freaked out that I, I couldn't even talk to him. I couldn't even say anything. I just did my job. And then when we were on set, I got to watch him, you know, interact with everyone. And Robin had such a positive energy that no matter what was going on, when he would show up and he would be in the mix, it would lift the spirit of the, of the room. And that would lift the spirit of the shot and it would lift the performances because Robin was just infectious with his, his he was a sad guy inside, but man, he, he exuded so much happiness and joy and fun and everything that people just fed off of it and loved it. And it just was amazing. And then Spielberg let him do his thing. And I watched Spielberg direct and I'm sure Spielberg thought I was stalking him, but I knew someday I wanted to direct and I wanted to be as close to him as I could possibly be. And I got to watch him, how he motivated people and how, you know, the energy that he would create on set. And then I've been on sets of other movies where you have directors that, don't create an energy and it's a big difference man the day takes a lot longer the crew doesn't want to be there it's important you know that a director create of the correct vibe on a movie set to get the most out of the actors and the crew and spielberg and, and robin um were as good as it as anyone i've ever worked with those guys were amazing and i and i really i got to work with robin like four times after that and i finally got you know 
comfortable enough to actually talk to him like face to face a few times. And it was by far one of the greatest experiences in my life. So, um, that was, that was an amazing thing for me. And I, I really feel fortunate to have even been on that set. And you were shop crew on that film, which uh, just every shot is so rich with so many little touches, so many visually wonderful things. Um, you know, how much did it take? Like how many, how many things did you have to create for that? Well, for Hook, we did, um, so there's mermaids in the movie. So we created mermaids that actually swam underwater. So we did a whole couple days at the tank. And this all shot at the uh, Sony lot. And then um, we also did uh, the look for Hook, his bald head when he gets his head ripped, his wig is ripped off. Uh, we did the ears for uh, Robin and for uh, Julia roberts we also did likeness makeups of julia roberts and robin some people that played him and her um what else did we do uh i'll tell you too the sets on that film are some of the coolest sets i've ever seen and the one main set that you see at the end with the giant alligator on it that is the stage that they shot uh munch the munchkins for the wizard of oz oh wow it's the same stage. It's legendary at Sony. So, um, which used to be MGM, I believe. So, uh, we were on like historical stages making historical movies and I knew it. I was like pinching myself every day going, this is not the normal day. Remember this and, and, and you know, respect and, and appreciate where you are today. <laughs> but I mean, it was amazing. The sets that? are like nothing I've ever seen. Um, and that movie, you know, when it came out, I was extremely proud to have my name show up in the credits. I was like, that was that was a game changer for me. I mean, when you talk about that, uh, Dustin Hoffman's uh, bold cap and and the wig on top of it, it's not just creating these wonderful effects, which are just just glorious enough to have worked on these films. But just the second you mention that, I can picture that moment where he pulls up the wig and he he begs for his dignity back. That, that right. that's a moment like which lives forever in people's memories. Well, and it's funny too because the piece that he was wearing it's a sculpted foam skull cap and then because he has the really really short cut hair every single one of those hairs has to be punched into that foam piece it takes forever and it looks amazing when it's done but you know um there's so much work that goes into something that you know people kind of see and go oh my god he's bald and then that's kind of it they don't really think about it but it's so much work that goes into making it look completely realistic enough that it doesn't continue to catch your eye. Yeah, and you mentioned that you went on to work with uh, Robin Williams a number of other times, but Mrs. Doubtfire, again, another classic from my childhood. Uh, you know, did you get to work on the Doubtfire suit on that? Or look? So we built, um, uh, we built uh, the suit, we built, you know, everything with Robin. We did the hair, the wigs, everything was pretty much done internally. Um, I, I didn't get to go on set with that one because I wasn't in the makeup union yet. Um, and uh, that was done by a makeup artist named V. Neal, and she's a legendary makeup artist. But we got, we sculpted all the makeups. We did all the makeup tests. Uh, we built the fat suit, uh, which was done, I believe, by a, a woman named Linda Nataro, who worked with us for years and built all of these amazing fat suits for all these movies like like uh, Big Mama's House and all this stuff. And um, uh, yeah, we did everything in one in this little tiny shop too. It was in North Hollywood. 
but um that experience was amazing i actually the one the one thing that i was got to sculpt was remember the face that gets run over by the the car on the street yes that was my sculpted tire face (laughs) 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 i wish i took a real tire and ran it over the clay just to make it as authentic as i could um but yeah that was that was such a great movie and i do remember like when we did the makeup test and i remember hearing about on set when robin was in that makeup Robin was gone. You never saw Robin until that makeup was off. He was Mrs. Doubtfire from that point on. Um, I worked with Jim Carrey a few times too. It's the same thing with Jim. When Jim is in makeup, he's gone. You you get the mask. He's the mask until that damn makeup is off. So these guys really, you know, when they embody the character, uh, and and I'll, I'll I will say this too. I as an actor took a lot of that on myself, and I do a lot of. Um, I do uh, charities at Christmas, especially as the Grinch, the Jim Carrey Grinch. And when I go and do these charities, like I did an old folks home and I did some downtown LA um, kids stuff. And and uh, when I do these things and I get into put myself in full makeup, I don't break character until I'm out of makeup. And I and I kind of attribute that to watching these guys because, because they're so into that character that no matter what they say or do, they're responding as that character. And they get so used to it that it's actually hard to break character. And sometimes when I play the Grinch, it's hard for me to stop talking like the Grinch the next day when I'm at work doing something else. So I get why they did it. And I got to learn that from the greatest of the greats. So again, I just was lucky enough to be in the room while all this stuff was happening and and get to pick up on it and learn from it. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine, even with the greats such as Jim Carrey mentioned there, Robin Williams, I can't imagine they get to and even even with their great uh, acting skills, they get to put that performance together if they can't see it in the mirror, if they can't see it to be it. Yeah, I mean, those guys, you know, I mean, the three the three actors that I've worked with that were so into character that they never broke, and it, and and they are probably some of the three of maybe the best actors I've ever worked with, which was Robin, uh, Jim, and I worked a lot with Gary Oldman. And uh, when I worked with Gary Oldman on Dracula and I worked with him on a movie called Tiptoes, um, we, you know, Gary is one of those guys too. When you get into makeup, man, he is, he is that guy and everything about, you know, what they do also. And this was kind of scary. Another person that's like that. I worked um, on the uh, Iceman movie and uh, the lead actor in the Iceman uh, who's playing, you know, a, a murderous killer also doesn't break, uh, doesn't break character. So the entire time I was doing his makeup, man, that guy looked like he wanted to kill me. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, but, um, great. Uh, Michael Shannon, uh, just amazing. Um, some of these guys, you understand why they get hired time after time, because they are so believable as that character that you kind of lose the actor and you're now dealing with that character the entire time you're on set. So you have to be very careful <laughs> on set that you keep your distance and jump in when needed. <laughs> oh, you mentioned Gary Oldman. I had a feeling that would be the third name to come out when you said there was three. Uh, but working on Bram Stoker's Dracula, that is remembered as uh, such a wonderful version of Dracula in a very uh, well-plowed um, field. Uh, how do you create something new? How do you do something different with uh, such a character which has been around so long as Dracula? Well, I'll, I'll just throw this out as a blanket statement for pretty much everything I'm talking about. 
it's never me by myself. There's always a team of people. There's always a group of at least probably four to 10 people that are involved in creating these characters, sometimes more. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a group of really talented people coming together and, and interjecting where needed to, to come up with these looks. Um, for Dracula, um, you know, there, uh, at that time, uh, creature suits really, you know, there was the predator and there was a couple of things, you know, and, and aliens, and there were some really cool creature suits. But I remember we were in a meeting, uh, with Coppola and, and originally the bat creature in Dracula, uh, that wasn't in the script. And the person that I was working for at that time, uh, was in a meeting with me and, and him and Coppola. And he brought up the idea of having a bat creature rather than having Gary Oldman, um, sword fighting looking like himself and and uh coppola was like well what would that look like let me see so we went back to the studio and a guy named mitch devane who is one of the greatest sculptors in the industry did this maquette of what the bat creature would look like and then we took it back to coppola and showed it to him and he goes oh my god that's in that's amazing so our company built the bat creature and then coppola didn't want the actors to see what they were going to see when they ran into the room when the back creature standing on the bed and he goes look what your god did to me that whole scene that was a one take um and when they came running in and saw that creature they'd never seen it before they had no idea what they were going to see when they walked in there or ran in there so their expression and everything is as legitimate as it could ever get and then after they played out the scene Coppola called cut and all the actors ran up to Gary and were, Oh my God. And they were touching him and flipping out, flipping out because they had no idea that that was going to happen. And of course that, that, that character and some of the other makeups that we did for that film, um, uh, uh, won the best makeup Academy award that year. Um, and I think that, you know, the designs of that, there was a lot of, of great designers uh, that worked at the shop with us at that time. Uh, Mitch Devane was one of them, a guy named Matt Falls, a guy named Glenn Hans. These guys were all these great sculptors. And, and as a team, everybody kind of came in and just really pulled it together and came up with some, I think, some pretty groundbreaking stuff. Oh, certainly. And as I say, it, it, it becomes memorable in something which we've seen so many times in so many other iterations, which is a, a, a wonder in itself. astounding time is fleeting we spoke before about jim carrey and the mask uh i think that is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier about that blend between uh, visual effects and uh, real world effects uh, how much of, of what we saw in that film was actually there and how much was added on later? Because it really it is one where it's it's hard to tell, which is especially impressive, I think, for the time which it was made. We're, still, we're, we're talking about Dracula, right? Oh, sorry. No, no. I was, I was just moving on to The Mask. Uh, oh, The and, Mask. I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. Because um, that was mask, such a, a cartoon of a film, uh, yeah. but it kind of blended very nicely between uh, visual effects and uh, real-world makeup. How yeah. much of it was actually there? It was interesting because um, I remember when we when I first moved down to Los Angeles and and I started working with this company. We were doing we had just finished Hook, I think it was, and we went and uh, and saw Jurassic Park uh, as a as a as a, a group. 
and we went, oh crap, things are about to change. And when we did uh, the mask, that was the first time I remember losing a job to digital effects because we had made the, the dog as a puppet that was gonna do all this stuff. And they're like, oh, no, thank you. We don't need it. We just, we're gonna scan it and we're gonna do it all digital. And we're like, oh, really? That was the first time we had lost um, work to digital. And then after that, we started losing a lot of stuff. A lot of puppets that would have been made became digital characters instead, some creature, you know, stuff like that. That was when digital really came in and started kind of taking over a lot of stuff. So that was really the, the turning point when I remember saying, oh, okay, here we go. This is gonna start being kind of the norm now. And, um, but working in that film was great because they, they, you know, being as cartoony as that movie is and having Jim playing the, the mask worked perfectly for them to have all those digital effects in there and have all the wacky fun, you know, cartoony stuff happen. It really took the movie to a new level. So I think it was a great thing that they had that, um, in the movie and it worked great and it was a great movie. So again, I don't have a problem with digital effects. I just remember that being the first time we went, oh, we're not going to get paid for the puppets we just made. <laughs> <laughs> are they not going to be in the movie or they're just going to get scanned? What does that mean? Scanned? <laughs> uh, yeah. It does seem by the time where that kind of uh, bellwether was shifting. Yeah, that was it. Uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Again, another one of these kind of shows, which um, just, it's just such an immersive world. Uh, had it at that point when you worked on it, you worked on four episodes of that, I believe. Uh, were you able to flex a lot of creativity or was there a lot of set law to that world at that stage? Well, to be honest, okay, so um, uh, I was working as a hired hired artist for a company that was up in Santa Clarita, where I live now. And um, right next door to our company was Saban, where they would shoot the Power Rangers. So we'd see them, the Power Rangers driving up and down our street on their motorcycles being filmed all the time. Um, I was working with uh, my mentor at that time, Steve Wang, the guy that taught me, you know, how to paint back in the day when I was up in Northern California. I was working with him and he was uh, working with Power Rangers and was actually directing episodes and things like that. So um, Steve Wang was really the guy that was designing and, and doing all the creative for that. I would just kind of his right hand guy at that point, helping him build stuff. And um, at one point in time, I uh, auditioned to be one of the lead villains. and. Um, and I got the part, and uh, and then the day I was supposed to go in to uh, start uh, filming and and do my thing, um, I got I got the phone call that I was replaced by the Mohawk guy from Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me!" Shit. So um, so we we built uh, some different characters um, for the for the show, mainly the villain characters and other characters. It wasn't I don't remember that we did any of the Power Ranger characters themselves. They had a company that was building all the majority of the main stuff. But a lot of times the outside companies would get hired to build um, the the things that aren't in every show. And I think Steve, uh, I think he was directing an episode and there was a couple characters that they wanted him to make because Steve was known for uh, designing the Predator. Steve, actually, Steve and Matt Rose, who, Steve Wang and Matt Rose, the guys that taught me up in Northern California, who then moved down here and then got me my first job when I moved down here, actually were responsible for uh, designing and creating the Predator uh, for Stan Winston. And also they, uh, along with some other guys too, there were other people in the mix, but they were, they were kind of the main guys running with it. And also they created the, um, the creature from the Black Lagoon character for the Monster Squad. I don't know if you remember that. 
Uh, no, no, I'm not familiar with that one. I'm oh, it's great, great creature. Um, they became kind of the rock stars of, of the effects world, luckily. And then my friend Matt went off and became Rick Baker's right-hand guy for the rest of his career, for the most part. And uh, Steve directed some films and did a bunch of cool stuff, but kept pulling me in to help him on creature stuff. And I played a lot of creatures for a lot of films that he did. Um, so... It's been it's been interesting because everybody kind of you know a lot of my friends who I started off with ended up becoming these really big, you know, top guys in the industry and and uh, and just remained my friends. Remained the guys back in San Jose. <laughs> and when you, you you mentioned there about your kind of work in front of the screen, is that something that you've always wanted to do alongside the makeup, or is it just kind of like opportunities have arisen as you've been working on the films? Um, no, I had a master plan before I moved down here that I wanted to get into makeup effects, establish myself. Then I would wanted to start playing characters, creatures and puppeteer. And then I wanted to write and direct my own films. So I, I would, that's why I would throw myself from the get go. I would throw myself into any creature suit. Anyone was making uh, puppeteer, anything I possibly could. Um, I got a really good, I got into SAG and became a SAG actor puppeteer on the movie called Jingle All the Way, where I remote control puppeteered this giant pink tiger character that we made called Booster. Um, and then I started heading up puppeteering and, and a group of puppeteers for any project that we would get through our company that had puppets in the mix. I was the main guy. Or I would play the creature. I, I also, I, would, I doubled a few actors. I doubled Kevin Sorbo for a film that we did called Call the Conqueror where we built this giant creature and, and Kevin had to uh, wrestle with it and he wasn't available. So I was looked enough like him and was the same size and build that they threw me yeah, in. I can see the Sobo within you. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I got to play a lot of characters. I really enjoyed it. And then, um, and then I got onto the show called charmed and they wanted all these creatures and characters. And it was really going to be difficult to do head casts and teeth casts and design and do everything that they needed in the time frame. So I made them a deal and I'm like, look, how about if I just play all these creatures and I make myself unrecognizable every time I make myself up, that way I can use all my head casts and body casts. You don't have to pay for that. And I can make these things faster and quicker and cheaper. And they're like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's see how that works. So I played a, a superhero or super villain character called the aggressor. It's actually the only character you can kind of tell that it's me. Otherwise I'm completely covered from that point on. And they're like, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you can do this. No problem. So then I played about probably about a dozen or two different creatures on the show from season five to 10, um, which was great because it just made it easy. And it was kind of a joke. We, we'd sit around the table at the reads and they'd read like, you know, nondescript creature. And then they'd all look at me and laugh and point. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of got silly but it was great and it saved them money got me a lot of um on camera uh uh characters and and i really enjoyed that and um and again it was just i was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time and, and kind of motivate what i wanted to have happen I love the kind of kinetic energy of what you're speaking about of, uh, you know, oh, there's something which you need doing over there. I'll do it. I'll jump into the dumpster. I'll do this. I'll, I'll act on screen. How do you keep up your energy doing so many things at, at once? Um, I was diagnosed as a kid as being hypertensive, which means I have way more energy than I should. <laughs> I'm also a drummer. I started playing drums when I was five. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty overly energetic and pretty motivated uh, to the point where it might be annoying. So I've just used that. And, and, you know, 
I do a lot of mov- motivational speaking at at uh, and and film talks and stuff at film schools and makeup schools and stuff like that. And I'll answer any question you want about makeup or or filmmaking or any of that stuff. But one of the main things I I always try to tell people and talk about more than anything is just being really positive and and going out and not being afraid to to take chances and go do what it is you really want to do um, because it's you know. I've been told so many times, no, you're not going to do this. And I just have this weird thing where I have to prove people wrong. Um, and I have too much energy to not do it. <laughs> so I always take it as a challenge. And I try to tell other people, you know, be be positive and it'll it'll work for you and just have a lot of motivation drive and, and it'll pay off in the long run. You mentioned the drumming there. Is that something that you manage to uh, pull into your film sometimes? Uh, you know, I... I um, I was the lead singer. I was a drummer when I was a kid, but I became a lead singer of a uh, a band that had a record deal and was touring back in the late '80s. And then uh, my career ended overnight. Literally, uh, MTV changed their whole programming, and all of the major rock tours were being canceled right around 1990. And uh, I made a switch, and that's when I moved down here and gave up music. And I had already started building my portfolio and had met Matt and Steve, and already had this as my backup. So. I moved down here in 1990 and, and actually just stopped playing music altogether. And I've been playing, I've been a musician since I was five years old. And I just was like, I, I just completely shifted gears. But um, uh, I came up with a project that is going to be my next film that I'm trying to get financed this month and shoot in April, which is a rock and roll comedy of which uh, I am playing a character in that is a drummer. So I can't give too much out of it, but I brought my drums back out last year and uh, reconnected with my my drums. And uh, uh, let's just say music is a very good outlet. And this project that I'm putting together is potentially the coolest thing I've ever done in my career. So I'm I'm looking forward to moving that forward and telling everybody about it once it's ready. That sounds very satisfying. And uh, you you mentioned the band you're in. Is, is anything still around online of that? Uh, and what was the band name? <laughs> Uh, well, the band's name was Dreamer, but you know, the funny thing is, is I never put anything online really. Um, and back then there was no online. So, you know, you didn't, there was nowhere to post. You didn't post, uh, there wasn't internet yet. So it was like 1989, 1990. Um, if, you know, it's funny cause I have, uh, my Instagram, I posted some of my old footage of my old band and, and things. So if, if anyone wants to see something that'll make them laugh for sure, uh, they can go on my Todd Tucker official Instagram and, and uh, there's video of me with long, blonde, curly hair looking pretty silly. Because <laughs> the audio of this is going on my radio show. So, like, if there was any tunes to put in here. <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. We are actually about to write an, an entire album's worth of original 80s sounding uh, music for this film that we're doing. So uh, I'm going to get to go back into the recording studio again and, and go back to my roots. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, and just any excuse to write in that kind of 80s. I'm, I'm picturing power ballads. I don't know why, but that's the first which came to my mind. Well, I'll tell you this. the um, I've got in this film that I'm putting together, I've already got major rock stars um, in the film, already agreed to being in the film. I'm talking major rock stars. And all the music that this band uh, that I'm putting together that's going to be in the in the movie, all the original music is going to be that music that continues to be retro. It's that upbeat commercial rock journey, queen, foreigner, 
sticks. I mean, it's that real, you know, that fun party music that we, we remember that used to make you feel good back when you'd hear it. So, you know, real positive, upbeat stuff. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that type of music. And, and it's such smart timing because, I mean, that, that music never really went away, but it's certainly having even more of a resurgence at the moment, I feel. 20-year-old kids continue to find those bands. They continue yeah. to be, I mean, there's just something magical and, and upbeat about that music that just makes you feel good. And, and I think that's why it continues to be retro all the time. Those bands and that music is just, you know, it hits a note with people and it's a good note. It's a, it's a positive note. And there's a lot of negativity in the younger generations that I think, you know, listening to some, some good, fun 80s rock uh, would be a good dose of happiness. <laughs> 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 i don't know I, I i think going off a little bit of a tangent but i feel like this is the uh most positive and most negative generation at the same time somehow that we've got now yeah um as stupid as this sounds i am on a true mission right now to create this project and and try to make people smile a little bit because you know the younger generation the 20 and, and younger generation right now gen z is is you know i think a little bit um, in a bad place, a very dark place, just because they're so locked into phones and, and antisocial. And I just, I know I have a daughter who's in that world and I've, you know, it's just, it's a very, um, it's kind of a negative uh, generation, I think. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean, that, you know, it's probably our fault as adults for, for having things, you know, the way they were growing up. But I just want to, I, I want to try to re recreate that, feeling that I had when I was a kid listening to this music, which just made me feel good. It just made me feel good about life and everything. So I feel like, you know, and it does clearly is the music that, that 20 year old kids, you, you know, dec decade after decade, they, they respond to it's the same type of music. It's journey, it's sticks, it's Bon Jovi. It's that fun eighties rock music that we loved. So I, I want to shove that down that generation's throat and make them smile. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Good mission. Sorry. Good mission. <laughs> hey, um, just going back to, to a few of your other projects, uh, friends you worked on. Uh, it seems like, I, I mean, I don't know if this was the case, but it's like uh, the first thing I, I picture when I picture someone being a makeup artist and friends is the iconic look of the friends and how they were so glamorous and they were the people to look like at the time. Was that the side of it you were working on or was it more? No, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you know what? It was because cause that was all beauty and straight makeup and we weren't, we weren't beauty and straight. So what we got hired for was, um, uh, there was a couple episodes that I came in and did some specialty makeups. There was one episode where Joey, uh, shaves his eyebrows really thin. And that was something that I had to do on, uh, the actor while they were shooting live. So I literally had 15 minutes in between, one scene to another scene to put that appliance on him and have him ready to go with a fake eyebrow. So that was one thing we did. But the main thing really that I, that I was involved with on friends was that I was uh, the head puppeteer for the animatronic baby. That was baby Emma. They had an animatronic baby. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. They can't, they couldn't afford the, the real baby uh, was problematic at times because you know, you can only have a baby on set for so long. Uh, the baby will cry while they're doing takes. Uh, there's just a lot of elements. So anytime they didn't need the real baby, it was the animatronic baby. And then I would be on set making it wiggle and do its stuff so it stayed alive and, and was believable.
So that was really the majority of what I did on Friends. But it was a lot of fun, too, because they would take the baby in between takes when they needed something to entertain the audience, and they would put the baby on a chair, and I would make it dance to music and stuff, and the audience would, would enjoy it. <laughs> of all the things I thought you might have said you worked on on Friends, an animatronic baby was furthest from my thought. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people didn't know that thing ever existed, so they're kind of surprised when I, when I mentioned that's, that's what we did. That's wonderful. You say I love you, boy But I know you lie I trust you all the same As if you haven't played with uh, enough <laughs> wonderful IP toys, Pirates of the Caribbean with Johnny Depp. Uh, now, I feel like uh, that's a movie which, weird, it's, it's, as someone in the UK, it exists in a weird kind of space of, I think it benefited in America of everyone knowing the ride, and it benefited in the UK of people not, and because we can be a slightly cynical breed here in the UK. Um, yeah, did, did you have to take a lot of notes from what was in the ride, or was it all about kind of reinvention and, and making it new? Um, again, we had a huge team of creators on that and designers. You know, um, we... Uh, you know, referencing the ride was always was always part of the the game plan. Was making sure that the it had the spirit of the ride. That was always something they wanted to do. But they also, you know, we, they gave us all these actors that we did headcast of that were the pirates, and then we created all the pirate looks. Uh, we did it digitally first as a Photoshop, and then we created the looks, all the teeth and all the scars and the wigs and all the different things. Um, and then we were uh, wondering when Johnny was going to come in. And then all of a sudden we got a call that the movie was on hold because they went to Johnny Depp and they said they wanted him to come in for us to design his look. And they wanted him to look like a sexy um, Captain Hook. And Johnny said, absolutely not. I want to look homeless. I want to look like, like Keith Richards. And they were like, not a chance. And he went, okay, see you guys later. And at least this is what I heard. I don't know what really happened, but that's what I was told. And they went, oh, you know what? Actually, you're right. That would be a great idea. Luckily, <laughs> the studios listened to him because clearly the way he portrayed Jack Sparrow is the reason why Pirates of the Caribbean, also being a good movie, but reason why that movie has so many sequels is because that character was so great. So he created that look on his own. He designed his own look, and he continued to design his own look for a lot of the different films he did after that um, with his makeup artist. Um, so... Uh, we didn't create his look, but we created the other looks. We also wanted to create the looks of the ghosts when they became ghosts, but that's when they were like, no, nah, we don't need your help. We got ILM doing digital. And we're like, but we got all these cool designs. <laughs> we're like, doesn't matter. We're, we're covered. Thank you. <laughs> so we, uh, and I didn't go on set for that one either. I was involved with the makeup test and, and, you know, the designing part of it, but we had, uh, a guy named Miles Tevis, and a, uh, who was a great designer, came in and he did a bunch of sculpting. And one of my key artists, a guy named uh, Martin Astles, and a bunch of these guys that are like the top guys in the industry, we hired. In, and we had a lot of films going on at the same time. We had, I think, two other films happening right around the same time we were doing Pirates. So we had three films going at the same time, with Pirates being one of them. So it was a, I remember, I think we had about 70 people working in the studio at that point. So it was a pretty, pretty big film. And, uh, I think the first Pirates for me is the best one ever. Yeah, it doesn't get Hands much down. better. 
Yeah, I, and I'm I'm so glad. It just seems mad to me. Like I, I do get it. Not every actor is going to have the vision uh, of Johnny Depp and of uh, Robin Williams and some of these other people. But when you have got a creative mind like that, uh, you'd be foolish not to listen to their vision for the character. I would think. Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot of times, but you know we do try to work with the actor when we're designing stuff. We try to get their input because we want them to feel like they're involved in the evolution of the character. Um, and we want their we want their input. We want them to like the look so that they can really work through it, you know. Because for an actor, and I know this for myself when I act in makeup, you know, when you when you're in that makeup, the best thing, and I and I always tell actors this, and this, and I watched Gary Oldman do this, and I saw what came out of it. He would get in makeup, and then he would go into a room with a mirror and lock himself in for like an hour and just look at himself in the mirror, doing expressions, and come up with and visually figure out what that makeup does so that he could build his character around it. And I always tell actors, you know, when you get the makeup on in the makeup test, have some you time, just go into the mirror and, and discover what this is and what you can do with it with nobody watching, just so you can do whatever feels right and just really see what the face does and, and how it works. And, and uh, it really helps them kind of discover the character, but we do try to get input from the actors to make sure that they like what they're wearing also. Um, and, and they usually give us good input, so it's it's helpful. And how about for yourself? When you're starting to create a look for a world, what, what's your kind of process? Do you immerse yourself in like like pirates? Do you do you immerse yourself in pirate imagery and and watch practical uh, films? It, what's the kind of process like for you? Well, you know, you, you have to take the direction of the director and the production as to what their what their vision is, because it's not my vision. My our our job is is to is to enhance the vision of the director or whoever's running the creative. Um, so, you know, for that one, we knew that the ride uh, was, was a huge visual aspect of what they wanted to keep consistent. We also looked into a lot of uh, visuals of what real pirates of that time, pirates in general, different regions of pirates. There's a, so many different types of visuals that, that came with historical pirates and people in that, in that time frame. So, you know, and then coming up with something too that visually is interesting. Um, sometimes historical stuff <clears throat> is a great starting point, and then you take that and try to enhance it to make it look a little bit more interesting, or or a little bit more creative, or a little bit more edgy, or, or just something to give it your own little your own little bit of uh, design. Uh, and then uh, just present it to the director and the producer. And a lot of times we'll do you know anywhere from ten to twenty different looks to show them so they can really lock in on what what they want and, and see options, you know? Um, but uh, it's so much fun though. Cause I mean, you know, I actually enjoy having a little bit of a, a reference of what they want because then it's a challenge for me to figure out to, how I can give them the best version of what they see in their head. And then it really excites them because then a lot of times you, you surpass what they originally thought and it just makes them really happy. And it's fun to make them happy because it's, it's great to see, you know, their, their vision come to life. And I, as a director, know what that's like, and it's it's pretty damn cool. Fantastic. Um, now, of course, uh, one of the things we're primarily here to talk about is the new Texas Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You worked on the look of the new Leatherface character. Uh, again, it's kind of one of these iconic looks. Uh, what felt important to include from the original visual language of those films, and what did you want to kind of like enhance and do something a bit different with? Well. Um, you know, that has, that character has such a huge audience and people, 
you know, there's, there's love for that character. So it's kind of tricky because again, you want to take what is, you know, the vision of the, of the director. And now you have a huge audience fan base that also has a certain amount of expectations. So for this one, uh, the directors only wanted to uh, focus on the first film as if none of the other films ever were made. So every reference was the first film only. And when they cast uh, Mark Burnham to be Leatherface, when he came in, you know, Mark, uh, we did a head cast on him. And basically, you know, his, his goal was to try to, to pull the elements from the performance that Gunnar Hansen did when he played the original Leatherface and pull some of those elements in so that it felt authentic uh, to this character. And, um, and then for us, it was really about just, it was really about creating the look based on what was happening in the script. I can't give anything away yet because it, it doesn't come out until February uh, 18th on Netflix, but I will say um, what his makeup is, is something that actually happens within the storyline. So we were kind of keeping it real to what happens in the story and then following that through, the character is not a lumbering uh, oaf. This character is moving fast. He is a badass. So there's a lot of action in this film. He is tearing people new assholes. It is pretty, pretty violent, pretty much what the audience would expect. And then some. Um, the kills in this I, are some of these kills I've never seen anything like it before. When I read the script, I was like, how in the hell are they going to pull this off? But they did, and it's 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 an amazing thing. The director, David Blue Garcia, did an amazing job. Um, the visual look of the film, it looks like a huge studio film. It was it was the DP was a guy named Richard, or no, I'm sorry, Ricardo Diaz. And Ricardo, it looks like a giant cinematic, beautiful film, but it just gets really mean. And the character of Leatherface has a certain element about it now where you kind of understand a little bit better why he is and who he is and i think it kind of brings a little bit of sympathy to his character but at the same time he turns in i mean he's just an animal destruction machine so i think the fans are going to really dig this and i think what we did for him look wise is a little different but again it's based on what happens in the script so I don't think fans are going to come back to us and go, oh, you shouldn't have done that because it's what happens in the movie. So I can't really change what happens in the movie. But I think it works really well and the effects are off the charts. We created Leatherface design and, and makeup and everything. His look head to toe, we created what his body shape was going to look like, what the wardrobe would look like. Um, the, the gore effects in the film, uh, the film shot over in Bulgaria and the gore effects in the film uh, were done by some local people there uh, with the help of uh, my main um, artist, one of my main key artists who actually designed the, the Leatherface look is a guy named Martin Astles. And Martin actually went over also to Bulgaria as a one-man show during the height of COVID, went over there and worked with local effects guys to help create all of the um, additional gore effects and everything while he was focusing on uh, Leatherface, but um, I think the fans are going to really dig this. Um, I'm, of course, you know, a fan of Texas Chainsaw. That was a game changer movie back in '74. Um, so I I'm really, I'm really uh, excited to see 
how people respond and but i do think they're going to be pretty damn happy and just just to get um something on netflix like the stream streaming is obviously where it's at these days it's very exciting uh frontier of filmmaking now were netflix uh involved from the beginning or is that something which uh, do they come on board later no actually so um it was funny because um i got a I reached out to a producer that I had worked with years ago um, named Herb Gaines. And Herb Gaines was a producer that I met when we worked on The Watchmen. And then I also worked with him on uh, the movie G.I. Joe and uh, Jack Reacher 2. And he had moved, he was located in uh, Louisiana. He'd moved to Los Angeles and was now working for Legendary. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, Herb, I really would like to work with you again. And he goes, hey, you got perfect timing. I'm doing this little movie for Legendary and I need your help. I need you to design the lead character. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Who is it? And and he goes, it's Leatherface. And I started laughing because I thought he was messing with me. And he goes, what's so funny? I go, are you serious? And he goes, yeah. And I go, oh, I'm so sorry. Absolutely. What can I do for you? And then um, so we went and started meeting uh, with the, the at that point, there's two directors that were originally going to direct it. We met with them and Herb over at the uh, legendary offices and started the ball rolling. And then COVID shut everything down. And I was like, oh my God, we're going to lose this. This is going to go away. And then he called me, uh, Herb called me and said, hey, we're moving forward. If you guys are up, let's do this. And I'm like, you got it, dude. So we brought in a crew. We worked extremely safe. This was at the height of COVID. We were doing all of the meetings through something that was called Zoom, <laughs> which we had never used before. And now we were using that to do all the designing and interact with everybody. And then, um, and then what happened was... Uh, Netflix was nowhere in the mix at this point. The other uh, production team that was involved was a production team uh, called Bad Ombre. And we were working with Fede Alvarez, who was the head producer over there, and he was killer. He knew exactly what he wanted. We started interacting with him. Uh, those guys did the new Evil Dead. Uh, they've done a lot of great stuff, so we were really excited to be working with Legendary and Bad Ombre. And then um, uh, Netflix came in at the end. It, after the movie was done, it kind of sat around for a little while. And we were wondering why it wasn't coming out, but we knew that the theaters weren't really doing anything yet. So we were assuming that they were holding off waiting for theaters to open. But then we had heard that they'd been, uh, the movie was bought by Netflix and was going to stream on Netflix. And we're hoping, we're hoping the reason why Netflix is doing this is because they might want to continue doing more with the character. So we are hoping for sure that uh, this will spring off into more um, and we would love to be in the mix as it moves forward. I, I can't wait to see it. Uh, just as a little teaser, I know obviously you can't be very specific, but is there any moment like you could sort of like just tease out a little bit that we should look out for in this uh, new Texas? Oh man, what can I tease? Um, okay, I, I will say this. There is a, there is a scene in the movie that has to do with a bus that I have never seen before. And it is the most intense thing I've ever seen on film. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, just, just when you see the movie, take, take that note and tell me if you agree with me. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, look, so I, I know we've covered so much, but there's so much more of your career. Uh, still, we haven't managed to. Uh, all the Disney shows that you've worked on, so much else. Uh, please, uh, if you can spare some time another time, we'd love to have you back on uh, to talk a bit more about your career. 
Absolutely. I appreciate it. And again, if anyone wants to, you can check out my, uh, my company, Illusion Industries at illusionindustries.com. And then I've got a bunch of personal stuff and a bunch of behind the scenes stuff that I post on my uh, Todd Tucker official Instagram and Facebook. So you can, you can check that out. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come back on uh, anytime you'd like. And uh, I hope you enjoy the film. I expect, I expect it to be a, a, a big talking point, I believe on the uh, 20 or no, the 19th of February. <laughs> I was going to say remind us of the date but 19th of february guys please of, of course eight, like, actually, i was going to say subscribe to netflix, or subscribe on netflix. To it. so the 19th is when everybody's gonna be on the phone talking about it or on the internet oh fantastic brilliant uh yeah. thank you very much for your time tonight todd uh it's been wonderful going through these legendary films and tv shows that you've uh, been a part of thank you very much for sparing some time for us thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it oh just sorry i almost forgot I like to end these things on the radio version, uh, which will go out tomorrow, uh, by playing a track selected uh, by my guest. Have you got a track you'd like to play? Maybe one of those 80s uh, classics you were talking about? Oh, really? Um, if you can play Feels Like the First Time by Foreigner. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, if you're listening in the radio version, here is Foreigner right now. SW20, the new sound of South Wales. Bit of Foo Fighters for you on a Tuesday as you're driving home with the doc. I hope you've enjoyed this show so far. We've just got about 10 minutes left tonight. Hope you enjoyed that wonderful interview with Mr. Todd Tucker. Uh, what an amazing guy. How many uh, projects has he been involved with which really have made our, our entertainment life better? is the best way I can uh, put it. Like, imagine Mrs. Doubtfire without that iconic look Robin Williams had in that film. It's it's just amazing. So we hope you enjoyed that. Look, it seems weird to kind of talk about this uh, so far into the new year. We're 18 days as this goes out on the radio. And it's the one thing that COVID did force me to do. Because you're just, just so ill-feeling, you just sews up with energy, it forces you to stop for a little while. And I think it was the kind of pause which I needed uh, to really get excited about doing new projects for the new year. So obviously, I love doing uh, this radio show here on SW20 Radio, and I look forward to some wonderful shows, some wonderful ideas I've got coming up for the show. And I can't wait to share those with you um, throughout the next year. But also, like, you know, I used to do a lot of writing, and I wanted to get back into that. So I hope that uh, whatever uh, your year has been like so far, hopefully it's been a little better than mine in the first few weeks. Whatever it's been like, I hope that you're inspired to do something this year, to to push yourself, to, to enjoy stuff that you enjoy and to invest yourselves in it. Because even though, you know, New Year's resolutions, it's just an excuse really to invest in something. And that can be a very exciting proposition. And I hope that you're grasping that um, with both hands, guys. For me personally, I, I just can't wait. Also, the other thing is, no matter what happens this year, uh, within reason, it really does seem on course to at least have cleared the low bar of being the best year of this decade so far. So that's that at least. 
Okay, guys, look, we've got enough time for uh, one, maybe a couple more tracks. Uh, so we're going to kick off uh, with Rob Zombie, and this is Dragula. You're listening to SW20 Radio. And that's David Bowie, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps to round off the Dr. Squeeze show this week. Hope you've enjoyed this week's show. My thanks to my guest this week, Todd Tucker. Please do check out the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie when it comes onto Netflix uh, in about a month's time. Guys, we had a wonderful time being back tonight. And um, I'd just like to say, if you find yourself in a garden, in a business meeting, please do check it's not a party. I've been Doug Squeeze. That was my show, and please remember, in a world where you can be absolutely anything, please be kind. I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone, or because I hate someone, or because because I want to blame someone. It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right, because it's decent, and above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all, but it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end. Just be kind.